Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Toil. <laughs> That's not how it goes. It's with a bubble. <laughs> just keep it. Just, just keep it. Just keep. Let me. Just... <laughs> what the fuck was that? That is, Take a that is not and, what we discussed. Uh, <laughs> whew, go. Boil, boil, toil and trouble. Grant Troy and I top said make bottoms double. <laughs> It's our favorite time of year, Troy. It's October. What if I talked the entire the entire podcast like an aged woman? Well, <laughs> as long as I can talk like a southern woman. Oh, uh, Troy, I mean, listen. Every time you go into that feminine voice, it, it gives me the vapors. <laughs> Troy. <laughs> Troy literally just spat up his, his seltzer did. all over himself. My Paloma. Okay. It's Paloma. Well, this episode has already started out a blast, Roger. <laughs> I just need to grab my oversized hockey mask. Oh, my God. Whose head was that made? And throw it on. <laughs> Who would that fit? For the, the elephant man, I think. The <laughs> elephant man. Troy, what are you getting us into this week? This is the last few episodes. We've really gotten into some just deep thoughtful films, movies that touched on topics of religion and Satanism and cult-like activity. And then this fucking week, you bust out bloody murder. Trevor Morehouse, one of the most iconic slasher villains in <laughs> history. It's a, it's a great way to kick off October, though. Halloween month, you know, what, what better film to kick back on a frosty... October evening with your spiced pumpkin tea. Is that a thing? Spiced pumpkin tea? I don't know. I've, I don't like pumpkin. And, oh, so you're asking okay. the wrong girl. Well, and, and just and put in Bloody Murder and watch the mm-hmm. iconicness that just unfolds on the screen in front of you. Well, and the reason I think that the term iconicness applies <laughs> here is because all of the imagery you're seeing is blatantly taken from other films that already exist and not even in like a subtle way it's not like a tip of the hat it's like it's abusing the copyright yes. i would feel <laughs> I, I have always wondered how the filmmaker did not get sued yeah. by friday the 13th victor miller you know he's he's kind of sue happy although he has a he has he has a legit reason to ha- have done that whole lawsuit but like yeah this film blatantly I guess you can't really trademark a hockey mask or you can't really trademark, you know, that sort of thing. But God dang, does this film pretty much rip off Friday the 13th in every possible way imaginable. Minus, you know, minus the, you know, the killer, you know, mother aspect that the first Friday the 13th gave us. But this film was not making any, any qualms about 
ripping off Friday the 13th. Let's just put it out there. You have characters named Jason. You have archery range deaths. You have uh, a crazy local who's trying to warn the teens of who just happens to like live on and nobody's bothered that he just lives on the. I, and all they've had, but the man has Alzheimer's. So like, how is who's taking care of him when the camp is not operational? Is he just living out here alone, wandering in the middle of the winter? There's so much here that, um, like you said, it, it it's baffling that there was not some sort of legality that came into play here. Because even like if you listen to the characters' names, you have Trevor Morehouse, Jason Voorhees, the location, you have Camp Placid Pines. Camp Crystal Lake. It's like the same amount of syllables. It like rolls off the tongue the exact same way as as the name, the location, all of these other things that come into play. There's a character, like you said, whose name is Jason. So it's just not at all subtle. There's even like a joke reference made at one point about being stuck there in the woods with a character with a guy named Jason. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty baffling that there was not some sort of like repercussion that came from this. But hey, bloody murder lives on. <laughs> And that's not to say there hasn't been other summer camp slasher flicks. There, oh, certainly have, but nothing as blatantly um, of a ripoff as this one. You know, like you think about Mad Men, The Burning. Those came out very early in the 80s before like Friday the 13th really, you know, took off as being kind of the iconic slasher that it is. But even post Friday the 13th with something like Sleepaway Camp, you know, at, at least they did something different. They weren't just blatantly like ripping off this franchise. But anyways, we were gonna, we'll, we'll get there. We are discussing, if you haven't figured it out, guys, we are discussing the 2000 slasher flick entitled Bloody Murder. But before we get to Bloody Murder, let's just, you know, quickly, uh, you know, talk about things that are going on quickly because I cannot wait to get to Bloody Murder. Chomping at the bit. So yeah, for, yeah, I'm chomping at the bit. So yeah, Roger, anything exciting? I think we have something exciting to to kind of talk about. Uh, the last couple weeks, I feel like, have been a buildup of excitement. We're both pursuing endeavors. We're both seeing successes, and we're both really, honestly, just as we've established a few times now, to you, our audience, uh, very much enjoying this podcast. I have a great time. Troy and I sit down weekly. It's just become ceremonial, and we record this podcast for you guys, and we don't see any sign of slowing down. So we're oh no, we don't. We actually have some pretty big. I would I think some pretty big things in the upcoming weeks that I think people are going to like shit themselves over when they hear them. Oh God, I'm because... so wanted to give it away. <laughs> I know we can't, we can't because who? I mean, we can't because I, it just baffles my mind that that it's going to that some of the shit that we have planned and that people are actually agreeing to do it. Have they listened to this? <laughs> Apparently not. If you guys aren't listening up to this point, we assure you in the next few weeks. That will change, at least yeah. for fans of the genre. I think we've got some exciting shit. Tell your friends. It's going to be soon before we have to move into a studio and actually, stu- you know, record in an actual studio over studio quality sound. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, so we have some great things going on. We we have we are one thing I'm going to talk about briefly is that we did we are launching the uh, Patreon for the podcast. So if you are interested in bonus episodes. 
other little perks such as you know we have like stickers plan we have like interactive activities planned for patreon just go to patreon.com and just search for dark night of the podcast the the link will also be in our the note the show notes this week and going forward because we are excited to be able to uh provide you bonus content exclusive content at the same time, you guys helping us be able to grow and improve the show. So that's first and foremost uh, is check out our Patreon. It's 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 you know it's nothing too extravagant. We're not trying to you know make millions off of podcasts. That's never going to happen. It's just you know we want to we want to do the bonus episodes. We want to get extra content out there, but there has to be kind of a, a motivation for us to do it. It's this is time consuming. It takes you know it takes about. Well, each of our episodes are about two hours long and to, to edit down and to edit our episodes, it takes me about, you know, five, four to five hours to edit down one of our episodes and we're working full time. So Patreon just provides an opportunity for us to provide extra content and kind of interact with our true fans or our, our really, our fans that are really excited to, to see what we're doing. Not that you all aren't true fans. You are, uh, but just check it out. I'm going to shut up. No, I think I think that there's definitely going to be a lot of good reason for any listener who finds us at all entertaining in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes I'm confused as to how, but if you do, um, this is going to give you a good motivation to want to look into more because we've got some really excellent stuff on the back burner. And we're talking about yeah, we're talking about two dollars a month, five dollars a month, nothing extravagant. And we did a we just released a bonus episode this week uh, where we and Roger discuss our uh, school themed slasher flicks that we made, Teacher Shortage and uh, Chill the Killing Games. And that was sort of to give you a little taste of kind of the some of the the type of bonus content you might hear on the Patreon. So again, check it out, Patreon.com. Search for Dark Knight of the Podcast. If you become our first patron, we will give you uh, the biggest shout out in the world. Our next episode uh so yeah just check it out other than that you know i mean same old same old um uh we are definitely have some wonderful things planned yeah for sure it's gonna be exciting month october is i mean it's our christmas you know Mm -hmm. horror movie fan lovers uh i think you can all unite behind that tis the season so we really are making a point to make the next few episodes really stand out for you guys like we said, we've got some exciting things coming. But right now, the thing that's got me most excited more than anything is bloody is murder. Epic, well, it's bloody fucking murder and the epic tale of Trevor Morehouse, iconic serial killer. <laughs> yeah. So let's get right down to it, right? Let's get into this. Right. This is what the fans have been chomping the bits to hear, Roger. I mean, I, I was I think since we launched our very first episode all over a year ago, they were like we cannot wait to hear these two guys discuss bloody murder. When is that going to happen? <laughs> well, it's happening now. This is the number one. It's You can't avoid it. It's coming for you full speed. And, um, you know, after, like, I have not watched this movie in a long time. This isn't one you bust out on the regular, I feel. No, um, no, but, no. But revisiting it was very, um, I love me with a lot of questions, Troy. I got a lot of questions. The thing about this film, and we're going to get into it, but I, I if I had to choose one word (laughs) to describe trying to watch this film it would be laborious this film is a chore to get through i do not remember it being this fucking boring i'm going to tell you something okay i used to work in a video store 
Okay. I actually worked in a couple of video stores. I worked at Hollywood Video here in Davenport, Iowa when I was in high school. But then during college, when I was at University of Iowa, I was living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And one of the part-time jobs I had, and it was right around this time, okay, was I worked at a Mr. Movies. Does anybody remember Mr. Movies? I don't oh, know. Mr. Movies. It was I think kind maybe all a little too young for that. Yeah, trip. you probably were. Um, <laughs> you spring chicken. But... Uh, but I remember, guys, that when this film came out and like when it hit the video shelf and I saw the box art and I'm like, what the fuck is this? It, it is a it's a hockey mask wearing killer. And I read the back of the box and I feel like I was probably the first person at that Mr. Movies to check it out because I was an employee. I could check out, you know, I, we were allowed to take movies home and whatnot. So I took this home and I watched it. Uh, upon its, like, it was probably the day it was released to, to home video stores. And I just remember being like, oh my God, this is so bad. But I, at that time, I felt like there was something charming about it. I don't know what, I mean, I was just a young, I mean, you're talking what, 20 years ago now, a lot has changed in 20 years, including my taste and, and how much of, I'm surprised that you could have gotten a job at four years old, Troy. Right. Little four year old me behind the video (laughs) counter, you know, checking people, telling them to rewind their damn VHS tapes. Can you imagine that? But my point is, I remember when this film came out, and actually, it was one of it was it, it was it got rented a lot, and I think it was because of the video cover. Like it reminded all the the people that grew up in the '80s of that of the '80s kind of golden slasher era. That the cover art is very, you know, the killer in the chain in the hockey mask with the chainsaw, bloody murder, ready or not, here he comes. It, it got rented quite a bit, to be honest with you. However. 20 years later, watching this film, I struggled to get through this film. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to, to like it a little, I wanted to like it this time around because I I didn't want to just like harp on the film because I figured it'd be so easy just to turn this podcast into a giant shit on bloody murder. But guess what? This podcast is going to be a giant shit on bloody murder because it is a horrible movie. I can't think of one redeeming quality that this film has and nothing about this film is good. And director Ralph, Ralph Portillo, is that him? Ralph Portillo, dude, you got the dude who came in and directed the sequel to your film did a much better job because the sequel is ions better than this film. And it's very rare for you to have a sla- a sequel to a film outdo the original in like every aspect, but this is one of them. And that's not saying much because it's not like that was a hard thing to do to top this film. But the sequel, you could tell, had a lot of heart to it and a lot of passion behind it. And it did everything a slasher should do pretty much right, including cast Tiffany Shepis. But anyways, so this film begins, which is its first problem right there. Um, It begins with a... His first problem is that it even starts, or <laughs> yeah, it's dead. that's the first problem right there. Uh, it starts with a car that's run out of gas, and it's a husband and wife. And the husband is like, his name's Jim, right? Because the wife's like, the, the husband's like, I just filled this tank 20, 20 uh, miles ago, and she's like, Well, Jim, it's out of gas again. So he grabs his little gas can and starts hiking up the road. 
And first thing I noticed is the girl that plays this mother, the the wife, the pregnant mother, isn't it the same girl that plays the Drew character? I'm wondering if if so uh, intentionally because she tells the story about her father yes. having been killed, yeah. you know, as we come That's to learn. Her well, yeah, we yeah. find that out. It's her father. It's her so, mother. So, I mean, that would make sense if they did cast her just to make it look similar because, honestly, she's only in it. The, the mother's only in it for literally a single shot. But I also wonder if it's because this is such a white cast that the fact that there is one character of color and now this other woman who is only in it for a brief second, we all, we just see her so briefly. We're like, is that the same person? Because literally, like, as you come to find, this movie has one individual who is racially ambiguous, ambiguous and like, you can't tell exactly what she is. You know, I think she's definitely got a little a little bit of something in her as compared to the rest of the cast being like an Aryan nation. Like it is the whitest cast I can think of in recent memory. It's very blase. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, we've talked about that before where some of the guys look exactly alike too. I think the, the two care, well, we'll get there, but anyway, so the husband Jim is walking down the road with his little gas can and he runs into a, a truck that stopped in the middle of the road. And he was like, Oh, can you help me? I'm so glad I ran into you because my wife and I ran, ran out of gas. Can you help me? And the guy immediately pulls out a chainsaw and it's not running, but, (laughs) but the, the guy, the dude's like Trevor Morehouse, he drops the gas can and he takes off at full speed. Okay, this is that horror cliche where characters run at full speed and the killer walks and can catch up with them because this Trevor Morehouse character is like literally walking with his chainsaw held. This guy is sprinting full fucking sprinting away through the woods. Trevor Morehouse still catches up to him and the dude trips and falls and he gets chainsawed. It doesn't show anything. It just shows the Trevor Morehouse character, which who let me let's stop is wearing a jumpsuit. And a hockey mask, a large yeah, hockey mask. It's very mask. much like the Michael Myers jumpsuit paired with a yeah. take on the Jason Voorhees hockey mask. And that's it. Like, there's nothing to make it stand apart from any other character. I mean, we've seen so many takes on the weapon wielding maniac, you know, from the yeah. Leatherface to the Freddy to the Jasons. Like, everyone's kind of got their thing. This character stands out in the fact that he is shockingly blasé and absolutely 100% taking elements of other characters that have come before him. And it is, it's almost, I mean, I don't say almost, it's offensive, I would say. It's offensive (laughs) as a viewer of the horror genre to look at this and think whoever was behind, like, costuming this character to think of the process that got to this, like, it's lazy. It's frankly is what it is. It's fucking, this is laziness. And then there's no other word for it. <clears throat> because here's the one thing, Troy. This will be a shit on Bloody Murder Fest, but I have aspects of Bloody Murder that I see, that I see potential in. And it seems like if this script would have been handled with a little more care and a little more originality. I'm not saying this would have been a movie that would be winning any awards, but it didn't have to be as by the numbers basic 
as it turned out to be. If they could have just injected a little originality into this, I think this film could have been a lot more fun. But unfortunately, it's like across the board, it's just bland. Nobody, nobody tried to bring anything to the table. Nobody tried to make it their own. You know, it's clear that the director was not trying to make this film his own. He was trying to make a movie that was somebody else's film before him and i think that's where it really fumbles because if you listen to a few little elements within the script the fact that it kind of takes like almost a police procedural pardon me a police procedural approach at one point that very much strays away from the original material that i'm thinking of um and it kind of, and for a minute it gets into its own stride but it's not enough to help it float and this opening scene like let's be clear it is under two minute mark Oh yeah, it's quick. It is so quick, it's so lame, and it, it, it really starts the film off on a very lackluster intro. And it's one of the only death scenes, even though this death scene, you don't it literally shows nothing. There's no blood, there's no anything. It's uh, You see the Trevor Morehouse character bring the chainsaw down. It, but it is, I will say, one of the only death scenes in the film that takes place at night. All of the deaths in this film are during the day, and I, I don't know if it was budgetary. They just didn't want to spend the money on having to have you know lighting and all that stuff that re- that's required when you're doing a, a night shoot. But every death in this film is dirt broad daylight, which is not effective for a slasher. Film. No, but we'll we'll, no. we'll get there. Uh, so that's the opening scene, basically, and then we cut to an SUV, your traditional SUV, full of a group of of counselors that are going to Camp Placid Pines for their summer assignment as counselors. And they're talking about Trevor Morehouse as being kind of this legend around these parts. And you get, okay, so you get Jason, you get uh, Whitney. Whitney. Is she there? Yeah, Whitney's there. You get uh, Dean, Dean, and then you get Julie. And apparently there's some romantic thing going on with with Jason and Julie because he's like oh Julie I'm so glad you came because I am not the big bad wolf that your dad thinks I am and everyone just like starts laughing at him it's just like a real corny line for him to say like anyways they arrive at the camp and we're going to introduce to Patrick who is like the lead counselor that's going to be their boss for the next six six weeks and we also get introduced it's kind of cute yeah we also get introduced to blonde brad who is cute and very boyish very innocent uh but they but we find out that him and jason have some weird like rivalry or beef because they ran track together and i was not understanding the point of this at all like no and it's not explored enough to really even be worth mentioning there's plenty of little things that come up that like are touched on throughout the course of this film that could be used to develop characters, but unfortunately, it's it's never really enough. Um, and you see that over and over in this script. Yeah, they act like they hate each other, but all we find out is that during one of their races, Jason broke broke his knee, and somehow that's Brad's fault. I, I it's like you said, it's not explored at all. And at this point, I do want to acknowledge like the cast literally multiplies like they're they all get out of the vehicle and all of a sudden they're like spawning off of each other i don't know where these fuckers are coming from it goes from like five people to like 12 and this cast i mean yeah we have talked about this before like you said when it's an issue where it's a cast 
that looks too similar that's too oversized like there are too many people here and there are plenty of characters here that i didn't even realize were part of the crowd until like three-fourths of the way in there's this random blonde girl that pops up i don't think she ever is given a name but she pops up at the very end of the film as like one of the survivors and i'm like okay she disappeared through most of the movie and then she just she just like pops up randomly I'm like, that is the most pointless character ever to exist. You could have cut her out and wouldn't have changed anything. And that's why I do say, like I was mentioning earlier with the mother in the car, who is definitely, like I said, racially ambiguous. I can't really tell what she is, so I don't want to state it. But she definitely stands out compared to everyone around her. So in the fact that when you meet this character coming up named Drew, who is, again, the only character within the group that has anything really making her stand out like i mean like and, and she has some okay dialogue i'm going to say this right now drew while the actress isn't that great i like some of the things they explore with her character it's definitely not enough but um she's interesting and she she gets introduced here in a minute but yeah it, it is very unique that the only character that is in any way not caucasian as all hell uh has this very specific story arc that we'll come to find well we have to mention the acting the acting is pretty uneven across the board i would not say anyone's good but there are definitely really bad ones and one of the really bad performances in this film belongs to the lead actress who is jessica morris who's playing julie she is absolutely atrocious in this film um to the point where it's distracting i mean it's almost like she didn't even want to be there. Do you know what I mean? Do you get that sense of like, it, I don't under this performance is so bad that I don't know if I was a director of this film, I just would have stopped and been like, Hey, you need to get it together. At least try because this is now working. I'm not saying this to be cruel or sarcastic, but like, you know, we've mentioned a few films where it feels like they like got their girlfriend a role or their best friend apart. Uh-huh. I wondered with this being such a low budget film, cause you see it across the board. You see like, the, I'm sorry, the camera work subpar. The location, like, they, uh, it's a bunch of woods. I mean, like, it, 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 it's it's boring. It really isn't anything that great. There's some pretty lake sequences. But overall, like, the camera work in this, there's nothing special. Um, it's a very low-budget affair. And so I'm curious with her, like, what is her relationship to the film? How did she get this role? I, to me, she just seems like a girl who's never acted before, giving her, her all. It's a girl who's not an actress, I don't think it's she's given it her all. No, but here's here's the thing, Roger, is you're, you'd be wrong because she actually has a lot of acting credits. And I've actually seen her in stuff that she is actually good in. I mean, she was actually on the soap opera One Life to Live for several seasons. Okay. Um, and then she was in a couple of Lifetime uh, made-for-TV movies. I mean, I know these aren't examples of like what we would think as being masterclass for, you know, showcases of acting. But I'm saying she has been in stuff. She was in Party of Five. Um, she at Rosewood. She's been in stuff. Yeah. And she's been good. Like, I don't understand, like, what the deal was here with her in terms of this performance because it's just bad. Maybe maybe it was just a bad experience for her and she just didn't feel like she just wanted to get it done and over with. But, yeah, 
But you're, I, I 100% agree with you. It totally feels like somebody who's never acted before, who has no acting capability at all. Um, she's also in this, uh, uh, one of the, she's also in, I can't think of the the studio. They put out a lot of like, they, it's the studio that put out like Puppet Master. It's all, it's called Dangerous Worry Dolls. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, but she plays like this woman, this like hardened like bitch that gets put in prison and is like being like abused by other inmates so she her daughter gives her these little like worry dolls and to make a long story short she becomes possessed by these little like worry dolls she's actually good in that i mean so she can give good performances it's like i just don't feel like she i feel like she maybe knew this was a giant piece of shit so she's like i'm just gonna but anyways not the greatest final girl i i I do want to say one thing though where we've in the sense of final girls because this has come up quite a lot Thank you, Beth. Um, but I think there, this is an example of a final girl whose performance is significantly less good <laughs> than her actual writing. I think the character herself, for what the slasher is and what it's bringing to the table, there's not a ton to it, but at, her character isn't is by no means the weakest link that we've ever seen here. Like, we have seen some girls who just are incompetent. We have seen some girls who are basically jello molds with bones inside of them that can't do anything to defend themselves. This girl has some pretty impressive chase sequences. She is proactive in what she does. She makes some strong feminist decisions that I think kind of raise her up as just like a you know, a strong woman. And unfortunately, the acting really steals away from that impact to the overall story because the acting is so subpar. Um, and it really, like, I think, takes away some of the clout. <laughs> some of the, some of the, I, I this movie would have, if it had a better performance in the female lead, I think it would have a, a more recognizable fi- um, final girl in Julie. Yeah, she's she's just very wooden throughout the whole thing. And, you know, it's almost like I would have preferred them to switch the actress that played like Whitney. If they would have switched the, you know, Jessica Morris and the actress that played Whitney, it could have been a a much more tolerable, you know, viewing because she was pretty good. Anyhow, the group then kind of break apart and they they're they're going on their little tasks. So you get Whitney, Toby and Julie carry uh, some food in from Patrick's truck and they're talking about. What they plan on eating and, and uh, Whitney's all excited because she's going to have a diet of Ritz crackers and peanut butter. Basic building blocks of a well-rounded eating disorder. Yeah. What? What? Is that a good thing? That's a very, that's a very 2000s, early 2000s statement. That would not fly these days. No. Toby and Julie get locked in the freezer and basically call for Whitney to finally let them out. And yeah, so Whitney comes, lets them out right as Toby is like sexually harassing Julie, who does not seem bothered by all of his sexual innuendos towards her throughout the whole movie. He is like diehard, like sexually harassing this poor girl. He's like, Ooh, I don't mind getting carnal with you. If it keeps us warm. And she's just like, Oh, Toby. And then, he still manages to somehow be a character that I I like more so. Oh, he's than the charming. Rest. I guess he's charming. Yeah, yeah. I like Toby a lot more than I'd say a majority of the people in this film. 
You'll never get your, a girl to take her shirt off in the refrigerator, Toby. <laughs> I did like that line from Whitney. <laughs> like, it's true. Like, why would you come out to a woman right, in a freezing right. space? Like, get somewhere, get somewhere warm. Then we get a scene, a quick scene of the group going down. They're, these are, they're just doing all this random shit. The group goes down to put some canoes in the water. And this is when it's revealed by Dean that Whitney can't swim. That comes into play here in a little bit. This is when we get introduced to Drew by Patrick. Uh, Drew is a bubbly, just kind hearted. Uh, I like Drew, the character of Drew pretty, pretty decently. I would say she's probably the best thing about the movie, which again is not saying a lot, but at least it's something, uh, they, they, re- they really try to make her character <laughs> quite likable. Uh, and in fact, her and Julie, when they're walking, they start bonding over like the fact that Julie lives in a small town and Drew is from a big city and Drew's always want to, want, wanted to live in a small town. And Julie's like, oh, it's awful. And they kind of have this bonding moment where you just get to, you get to see just how wooden the performance of Je- uh, Julie is compared to the Drew because she the actress who's playing Drew is just being bubbly, giving a lot of personality. And of course, Julie, this Julie character is just flat as a board. Yeah. And let's be clear. Drew is not like the best actress I've ever seen in my life. She's simply way more charismatic. Well, I think if you put anybody next to this Julie character, they're going to become charismatic. Hell, I'd look like charismatic. I'd look like Meryl Streep next to this. (laughs) I appreciate some of the choices they make with Drew's character in the sense of She's just significantly more like laid back and less stressed and less um, in everybody's yeah. business. Like Everybody, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, she's like, there's scenes where she's smoking what I assume to be weed, weed yes. cigarettes. You know, she's she's kind of just there for herself. She's not, a lot of her story arc is more between her and Julie. Um, it almost, and like, listen, we say this for every fucking interview, but uh, tell me this ain't the case, Troy. I definitely get a queer vibe from the two of them. Like these two definitely go down on each other at one point at the summer camp. There's no way around it. Like this is the summer to remember for these two. Um, but there's definitely like, they form such a quick bond and, and a closeness. And they, they do have a few moments where they actually like confide in each other. And they're definitely like the best couple in the movie. And I say that without a comedic tinge to it, like I would almost have loved it in the end if they ended up as a couple because these two really like gravitate towards each other and all of their best scenes in the sense of development are together yeah i would agree and and and, uh the character of drew does just does have this kind of butchness to her in in a way but she's a very like you said very uh charming character there is a lot of personality going on and then you get her paired with Julie and it's just, you know, the, the, the antithesis between the two is, is pretty blatant in terms of their performance or devotion to the characters that they're portraying. Drew forgot her camper list. Now there's this, this camper list is mentioned several times throughout this film as a ploy to get like a character to have to go retrieve it so that they separate from another character i don't know i've never been a camp counselor but what the fuck is a camper list is it a list of of all the campers that are coming to the camp if so why do you need that now because it's like oh i forgot my camper list i better run and go get it yeah 
they do a few things with, especially Drew's character, because it's pretty quick to establish that Drew is like kind of a red herring. Mm-hmm. And that carries through the whole movie. But this is the first of those moments where she has to go disapp- disappear like at random at like the drop of a hat. You know what I mean? So um, this comes up again later when uh, Julie asks her to go to the to the lake or something to hang out with the group. And then and she's like, no, I'm just going to stay here. And it's like, well, OK, that's weird. Like, why is this character so separated from the rest of the group so they definitely established this red herring energy with drew pretty quickly um and this is the first example and i thought the same thing i was like camperless what the what what are you fucking doing yeah, there's no yeah. campers there's nobody here yeah, I didn't for days it. you've got days but it's a pl- it's a plot device to get drew to leave julie alone so as julie's walking through the woods this is when we get the weird ralph like character that comes out of nowhere and grabs Julian's like Nelson's come back for revenge. And it's very much like the crazy Ralph character in the first two Friday the 13th. I was like subtly annoyed with the Friday the 13th references up to this point. This is the point where I actually would say I was offended because crazy Ralph, first of all, you can't beat crazy fucking Ralph. It's, it's on its own level and no crazy man that you stumble across in a slasher movie is going to live up to that performance so at least try to do something new at least give me something i don't know give him a wooden leg give him one eye give him i don't know something something to make him feel like he's not just a take on the exact same character done in a different movie but no, like, this guy, like, all they do is give you a watered-down crazy Ralph. Like, what they give you is this character named Henry, who is, apparently has Alzheimer's, yet is living alone in the woods, which is, like we said, a, a horrible idea. This man is going to die without the proper care. <laughs> and he's uh, he's physically uh, uh, approaching and grabbing the, 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 the counselors. Like, that's an issue in of itself. This man needs to be put somewhere where he's not startling young women but here we've got this alzheimer's man coming out of the woods just busting out scaring people and i just like again the laziness it's so lazy it's super well it's super lazy because he's basically dropped halfway through the movie and you never see him again at least at least friday the 13th at least the sequel at least had the common decency to bring him back and kill him this one's just dropped like he's used as a plot device and then just drop completely like you didn't even need him in the film this okay in this next part roger i don't know if it annoyed you but it annoyed the fuck out of me because there was no point to it it's when she goes okay (laughs) it was 2000 the internet was kind of a, a fresh thing so this film really liked to play up the emailing so julie runs back to email her dad and she's like oh i just ran into this crazy guy and he said that nelson has come back for revenge The film also makes the point that the emails have to be read to us, right? Every time there's an email, it's read to us. However, Roger, for Julie, it is blatantly not her voice. Okay, let's be clear with this. First of all, with the voiceovers in general, they get real old real quick. Like every email, and there's a lot of them, Troy. Like it's not just one or two. There's like five emails and a website like browsing sequence and it's got to be one of the first website like 
exposition sequences of its time because she's sitting at a, an archaic computer. It's like a fucking dome. She's just like glaring into this tiny little monitor screen, reading this like dated, aged website. It's 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 comedically dated at this point, I would say, but it's almost kind of charming, I guess, at the same time because it it's it's so early two thousands. But this first time that like when they had this voiceover, I was like, okay, that was obnoxious. Thankfully, it's finished. It's like a third of the movie that you have voiceovers. And there is one that is a voiceover. And when it's the website that she's looking at, this website getting information on the camp. And it is a random woman's voice. And I guess maybe they just had to get someone who was more verbally charismatic because she's so flat with her dialogue delivery. But it, it does make for a very, very uneven just decision. Every time an email that is supposed to be from her is read, it's clearly not her voice. And in fact, it sounds like the actress that plays Drew. Uh, so I don't know. Was it that hard for them to sit her down, sit Miss Jessica Morse down and be like, here, bitch, read this so we can record it so we have something for the voiceover? Or did they decide maybe like after they were done filming that, hey, we need to like, you know, spoon feed our audience. So we want these emails read so that we don't have to like keep the email on the screen and annoy audiences by making them read. Oh, but Jessica Morris isn't available. She's off, you know, filming one life to live. So let's just get some random woman to read it for her. But it, it's so obviously not her voice. And I know it's a, it's a stupid thing to pick up on, but it's like, if you're going to have an email from a character who's literally sitting right in front of the computer and it's being voiceover to us, why isn't her voice? I just, it was like, ah, and you're like, you're right. And it's random, like female voices. Every time an email from her is read. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange choice. And I, I'm curious, like you said something earlier. I wonder if she had a bad experience with this film, because if you look at the sequel, I think she did. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the sequel, it doesn't, she has no connection to it. It's her sister, right? No, I was, I was scrolling through, through IMDb reviews for this film and there was one of them that that clearly stated that she has she's trashed this film like blatantly trashed this film so I yeah maybe she had a bad experience with this I I, I can't imagine that the bitch had fun filming this because it looks like anything but that oh yeah uh, at least the other actors as horrible as they were oh or as bland as they are, at least they looked like they were kind of having fun. Uh, this girl does not no. at all. No. She looks like she would rather be getting a fucking pap smear than being <laughs> in this movie. It's it's so weird. It's just weird. It's just weird that, and I know budget, can, you can't like recast a film halfway through it, but I'm just like, why didn't the director like do something like, <laughs> I don't know. I, Okay, let's move on because we're going to talk about this bitch plenty as the film goes on. So, yeah, so she sends an email to her dad and, and then the, Jason <laughs> pops up in her window wearing a hockey mask. <laughs> You're so clever, bloody murder. <laughs> <laughs> and scares her and she's like, don't do that. And he's like, oh, baby, you're too uptight. And now there's a scene of them much like Friday the 13th part two, where they're sitting around a campfire. They're talking about Trevor Morehouse and Jason's bright idea is to play this game called what's the game called Roger bloody fucking murder. It's called bloody murder. 
And it's not, Roger, it's not enough for them just to say, yes, let's all play and then show them playing the game because we as the audience can probably figure out that it's pretty much like tag and hide and go seek. No, they have to let Jason give us a five minute long explanation step by fucking step on how to play this game literally for five minutes. I am like, the game is literally running and hiding and tag. It's running through the open wilderness and running through fog and <laughs> he gives the it most just... convoluted complicated instructions on how to play this game i'm like it is not that hard you're playing fucking tag calm down this is the point in the film where like there are a few they give it a shot at having a few startles like yeah. there's finally the idea that there's somebody on the woods watching them and so you get a couple of like jump scare kind of startle scares and it, it it kind of it sets the groundwork for what to expect which is the scares in this movie are not effective and that is one of the biggest issues i mean and there are many but like if you're making a horror movie and it's not scary what the fuck do you have um there is a specific startle with dean popping out from behind a tree and it's like it's something that in a, in the hands of the right director in the hands of a filmmaker who knows how to handle suspense and this kind of moment it could have probably been like a you know a standard fair startle <laughs> but because of like the weak music like everything everything is so lackluster there's not enough sound effects the stingers are bland uh, it, it's just kind of like it, anything it's uncomfortable i feel like i'm watching a college project at certain points there's just not enough of anything you know can we well i'm glad you brought up the score the score to this film is so what's the word it's just inappropriate compared to like what they're trying to do yeah and then the whole film i don't know looks has this like soap opera-ish look to it like this really low budget soap opera look and feel to it it doesn't yeah. yeah, everything is off. Everything is off. The cinematography's off. The lighting's off. The score is off. Yeah, so I guess in this scene, you get Dean and Jason who think it's a fun thing to scare Brad, blonde Brad. He comes out, or Dean pops out of the woods when Brad's walking and has like blood all over him. He's like, oh, oh, Brad, you got to say bloody murder for me. And Brad takes off running and then. The character in a hockey mask and uh, the jumpsuit comes at Brad, knocks him to the ground and like raises the axe and stops it right before he hits him. And lo and behold, it's Jason. And they just played, you know, they're playing a, a funny joke on Brad or what they think is a funny joke on Brad. This joke would have gotten them f- fired from any standard institution. Like it's a step too yeah. far. I'm sorry. It's a step too far, especially because Brad, like when he falls, he like hits his head on a rock and his like head's bleeding. I'm like, that's, and here you are, you're, you're like trying to like supposedly trying to like mend, you know, whatever beef you had with Brad as Jason, as we find out, you know, as we found out earlier in the film that they have some beef and Jason's like, Oh no, I'm good. I'm going to, well, I'll be fine. But then you're going to do this to this poor yeah. kid. No. Yeah. Brad's character, who is one of the most underdeveloped characters in the, in the film. Um, he's but he's sweet. sweet, but and he's, he's cute. They, they, give us, they, they give us so little with him 
that it's like he's kind of just like there for the other guys to kind of like pick on and it's not like he's like a pushover or anything it's just his character doesn't really have like a like a stand-up redeeming moment as you'll come to find out he's he's very disposable and which is weird because he is one of the hottest guys in the cast i think and like doesn't look like somebody that you would like pick on and be like he would be like back down very easily so julie gets mad at jason for scaring brad and uh, she is like i what are you gonna do punch me you're just a bully and he's like oh don't be that way julie i love you they separate julie goes finds drew this is when drew is smoking pot and she's saying it's a habit she picked up in guam I don't know. Do they smoke a lot of pot in Guam? Apparently, I don't know. How? How? What was she doing in Guam? I don't know. She. Did. I mean, like, who am I to assume her backstory? But this that came out of fucking nowhere. I mean, I like someone who smokes pot. At least it's making the party a little more exciting with these all fucking lamos. <laughs> that up to this point, everybody fucking sucks here. <laughs> At least this chick gets it. She's off on her own. She's smoking a doobie and invites Julie to hang out with her. And I don't know why, because Julie kind of sucks. But um, they do have a really surprisingly nice scene together. This is actually kind of one of the sequences that I favor in the film. And it's, again, like I said, Julie's not poorly written. Or, yeah, she's not poorly written. She's poorly acted. So you've got what actually I think is some unique dialogue. You've got a moment between these two girls where they start to bond over this joint and um, I think it's some of the better writing in the film. Unfortunately, the acting is like at a C minus at its best in this scene, as compared to an F from Julie the rest of the time. But um, I do feel like I said, this is one of the moments where I was like, oh, some character exposition, some development. Like, this is surprising. But it doesn't last long. Um, and it's not like they're really tr- bonding over like anything special it's like she's talking about how her they're both talking about they lost a parent like julie yeah. julie's mom recently died and then uh drew's talking about how she lost her dad and even julie offers you know julie offers uh or i'm sorry drew offers julie a puff of the um the weed and she declined she's like oh not right now <laughs> but i am going to carry this conversation into a later scene that they have where they're sitting together in the daytime yeah. and they could, and then Julie finally does smoke with her. Yeah. And I think that if you continue this as one kind of thought for the characters, one story arc, it's one of the few story arcs that I think pushes a little bit of the boundaries outside of the box of what is otherwise a very basic, very simplistic script. So we cut to Dean who's still wandering around in the woods. He stops at a tree to pee and this is when he sees Jason and Whitney having sex, like right there in the woods. And we have to remember, Jason is supposedly Julie's boyfriend who like two minutes ago in the film told her that he loved her. And now he's banging Whitney right on the f- floor of the woods, just right there. Yeah, in like a big open area where it's very easy for anybody to see it, honestly. It's not like they're hidden in the brush they're like laying out under a tree and Dean is just kind of just watching and like a voyeuristic kind of creep. Uh, Dean also does look like he's roughly 50. Um, he is by far, he's the elder of the group, I would assume. He does not look 
like he would be anywhere near his 20s. Um, so this is an all ages affair, I, I suppose. Uh, we get, we see Jason then getting dressed apparently after he, they just had gotten done having sex and someone comes up behind him. He turns around, gets an awkward look on his face and the scene cuts. Oh my God, Troy, this fucking fade to black. Like I've been so frustrated with this movie up to this point, but this fade to black, I was, I literally was so close to turning the movie off and saying, fuck it. But I, you know what? I bit the bullet and I sat back down and I watched the rest of it. Um, but like this is this is really like setting the bar for what to expect for a lot of these moments. It does not give you much payoff uh, any, in any way, shape, or form. But the kills, I'd say maybe one, maybe two of the kills are like okay. Other than that, it is just like cutaways, random fade to blacks. You don't know what's happening. Now this ends up not being a kill. But still, like, they could have done something more with this fucking sequence. I'm sorry. Then it's the next day, and Julie is wandering around the camp asking everyone if they've seen Jason. Have you seen Jason? Have you seen Jason? And she keeps saying, we had a fight last night. No, you didn't. Like, that's one thing right there is you did not have a fight. You confronted him about being mean to that Brad character. And then he said he loved you. And then you you two were perfectly fine. You're like, oh, she was like, oh, what am I gonna do with you? And they walk hand. You did not. You had. You did not have a fight with him. You dumb bitch. Ugh. It's like, can you not? We didn't. We didn't acknowledge it. The fact that her response is, what am I gonna do with you? Like, you fucking dumb bitch. And then they walk. <laughs> they walk away hand in hand. You did not have a fight with him. But she's telling everybody, oh, I had a fight with him. We had a fight last night. And he ran. You know, I haven't seen him since. You walked hand in hand away f- with him after he told her you. He loved you, you dumb. Ugh. It's like, just like you said, lazy, 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 lazy writing. But I love it because everyone's dismissive of her. They're like, oh, he's probably off doing something. You know, he, 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 uh, Dean says, oh, well, yeah, he told me he was gonna, you know, go off and do something else. He didn't want to do this anymore. Yeah, these people couldn't be less concerned if they tried. They are totally just dismissing her. And every time she approaches somebody, it's in the exact same vo- like t- vo- vocal tone. <laughs> it's like, Whitney, yeah. have you seen Jason? Hey, Pat- Patrick, <laughs> have you seen Jason? Like, it's, It shows how little range this girl has as a performer. Her voice is so flat. Oh, it makes my, it makes my ears bleed. Or my, it makes my brains bleed out of my ears. Oh, and, well, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. I have to mention something else. Now we get Whitney, who is like sunbathing on the dock. And Dean pulls up in his little canoe and he convinces her to get in the canoe with him and takes her out into the middle of the pond. And we already know she can't swim, remember, because that was hammered home earlier in the film. Well, as they're out there, he confronts her about like sleeping with Jason. And apparently we find out that they're a couple. They, they were a couple and he's like, that was my best friend. Couldn't you have done it with someone else? And he like starts rocking the canoe like really violently. And as she's trying to like hold on to the edges, not to fall. And he starts like whapping the whapping at her hands with the oars. I'm like, what the, f- this dude is a fucking psychopath. Yeah. Like it's like, is he, in my mind, I was like, is he going to rape this girl in a canoe? Like that seems very counterproductive in general, but yeah, then he starts just like rocking it and like, that's shitty, because you know he knows she can't swim. But um, I do feel like this film also did a really poor job at like setting some of the characters up as being what is red herrings, red herrings, or just like 
negative characters, antagonists. Like, Dean mm-hmm. has been annoying up to this point, but now all of a sudden he gets, like, rapey. And then he gets, like, kind of almost murdery, and it came out of fucking nowhere. Like, not every character in Julie's life is going to be someone potentially like, potentially looking to kill people, but it sure seems that way in the way they're acting around her. Um, but um, he does this whole thing where he does knock her into the water, and, like, for a moment he almost, like, considers not helping her. He even, like, canoes around her, and then he, like, offers her the oar, and it, after, like, three minutes of like watching this girl drown he's like oh look i have a flotation device and he throws it to her i'm like you motherfucker like this girl could take you to prison for what you were doing right now yeah he 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 very half-heartedly helps her yeah he's like grab the oar and every time she reaches for it he like pulls it away so she can't get it yeah and she's literally drowning and finally he's like oh yeah here's the flotation thing he tosses it out to her and then he's like, gets her back in that point. He's like, are you okay? Well, no, she's not okay. She almost fucking drowned. Just take me back. Like, please. Just take me back. I felt bad for her. She's all shivering and, oh, poor thing. So as Julie's still wandering around the camp asking everyone where Jason is, that's when Patrick confronts her. He's like, hey, Dean told me that Jason said he was going to take off last night. And somehow they already know about Dean knocking Whitney into the water because Jet, uh, what the what the fuck's her name? Julie's tattletale ass is like, oh, by the way, Dean threw. I think something's wrong with Dean because he threw uh, Whitney into the water, and you know she can't swim. How'd you find out about that fact? But I'll bitch? say this. Well, okay, they do some weird fucking time jumps in this movie to begin with that I don't like. I'm not a fan of. They should have absolutely shown the scene in which they learned about this. Um, but that being said, I'm kind of like, okay, Julie. Here's an example of where I'm liking the way she's written. She doesn't even hesitate. She goes straight to, you know, the person in charge, to Patrick, and says, hey, um, we have a problem. Dean just tried to drown Whitney. I saw it from the, like, the shore. I watched it. She's not going to tell you, but this needs to not be happening <laughs> at the summer camp. And I'm like, okay, this is a valid point. Good on you, Julie, for just fucking like having your friends back and uh, making sure she doesn't get drowned by her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, but he's also very dismissive. He's like, okay, well, I guess I'll talk to him about it. And now it's nighttime and the group is watching outside. They're watching a horror movie, except Julie and Drew are in their, still in their room. And Julie's emailing her dad, blah, blah, blah. She's doing throughout the whole movie. We cut back to Whitney, who is sitting next to this no-name blonde-haired girl. And it's like... Who up to this point I thought was Julie. Yeah. <laughs> Until I realized no, it it's just some her. random blonde-haired <laughs> girl. And she's like, I'm going to go get something to eat. Do you want anything? And she's like, no. So Whitney goes into the pantry of the main lodge area. And someone comes in in the mask and jumpsuit and with a butcher knife and stabs her. But not before she gets a... You know, very Tatum and Scream like line where she says, Oh, take off your mask and show yourself, or whatever it is she says. I'm like, Oh my God, really? Yeah, they knew exactly the crowd they were playing into for this one. Um, eh, man, this is just an example of one of the kills in the movie that. It's a cutaway. It's a cutaway. You see him raise a knife, her scream, and then some a bloody knife pull back, and then the Ritz crackers fall on the floor. <laughs> With a 
pool of blood forming around. Yeah, and in the pool of blood, you, like, see... They try to do, like, one of those reflection shots where you, like, see the killer in the pool of blood, but, like, the, the camera just isn't good enough quality, I assume, to, like, pull it off. So it just makes for, like, a very murky... Murky image of what appears to be the killer watching from the pool of blood. Um, but hey, I mean, good on them for trying, I guess. <laughs> well, now the sheriff shows up because there are two counselors who are missing now. Dean or Jason and Whitney. Well, at least these people are observant, right? I mean, at least they notice their friends are going missing and they're not just standing around not doing anything about it. They're actually being like proactive about it whereas you think about other summer camp movies where like people are going missing and nobody like bats an eye or gives a shit like you know this shit well first of all this sheriff is every he's literally every fucking sheriff from every backwood slasher movie i've ever seen but with the addition of a like massive bucket cowboy hat it's it's huge and it's very distracting and it's he's rarely without it um but, like, his sole purpose, once this character is introduced, is to be basically the driving force to keeping the summer camp open. There are, like, at least three times over the course of the film where he's like, hmm, I don't think you've got anything else to worry about. To which, at, immediately afterwards, someone is killed. Like, they are dispatched within minutes after him saying it every single time. So I don't think this off the sheriff has quite a grasp on what he's dealing with. With these murders, I don't know if he's ever encountered a murder before, um, but he does not seem to be doing his job very well. Well, he's trying. At least he's showing up, right? <laughs> Which is more to say than some of the other films we've watched. Yeah, Patrick. A Patrick asks him if there's any truth to the Trevor Morehouse legend, and the sheriff's like, "Absolutely not. There's no such person as Trevor Morehouse. <laughs> In fact, murders don't actually exist." Not here, not anywhere. You have nothing to worry about. Keep the summer camp open year-round. Well, and then the sheriff is like, oh, is there anybody that was like, that messed with Whitney before she went missing? And Patrick is like, oh, well, matter of fact, there is. So the sheriff goes to question Dean. And Dean's like, I have nothing. I had nothing to do with her. To do with it. Tony, Toby can even vouch for me because I... We, me and Toby started the movie together and I was with him the whole night. The sheriff goes to talk to Toby and I love that Toby is like, oh, well, he could have done it. I didn't see him. He, I, I wasn't, my eyes weren't on him the whole night. He sat behind me and like goes off on this whole scenario that they actually play. They actually show this happening of Patrick, how he snuck away and killed Whitney. For a moment, it feels like we're watching CIS. Yeah, like yes. we literally. I wish these scenes had like the CIS like musical cue to transition from sequence to sequence because it becomes a police procedural for about fifteen minutes. And this sheriff, he's getting down to brass tacks. Like he's figuring it out. He's doing some sleuthing. He's talking to everybody. When we get to the Toby scenario, he goes off on what I can only describe as like an autistic kind of like spiral into like a very overthought very elaborate scenario that he clearly has to have been working on for hours prior to this um but but, but the, once they start including like the scenario visuals like what appears to be a flashback of what could have happened <laughs> i i lost my shit it is so unnecessary it serves absolutely no purpose to the movie whatsoever it is in fact not what happened 
at all. So it doesn't, like, there's no purpose for it. I wonder if they just needed to pad some time. So they're like, Toby, actor that plays Toby, we're giving you a monologue and we're going to film all of it. Because it really, it is, it is so random. It's this tangent. And he just keeps going and going in the details. He's talking about everything down to the minute, the exact length of how long the movie played. It's very strange. Very obsessive. I don't understand the motivation. No, and it's not the first time. This It's not the only time in this film where that happens. This exact same thing. Where you're seeing an alternative, like, playoff of what actually happened just because some character thinks it's what happened, if that makes sense. So basically because of Toby's detailed synopsis of how Dean could have killed uh, poor Whitney, the sheriff's like, oh, I'm sorry, Dean. I have no choice but to take you in overnight and, get, and question you some more. That's all. I mean, honestly, like that's all it is. Like that's <laughs> they get him to go. He doesn't resist it. Like it's not. It's not like an exciting turn of events here. There's an additional person missing. No one seems that concerned. Everyone seems pretty confident that it's Dean, and that's that. Where the the, the officer even says he's like, I think we're okay. You guys could go about your business. We're fine. Yeah, and then uh, then Julie goes into the uh, main little rec room to, to apologize to Brad for like what Dean and Jason did to him two nights ago. I'm like, lady, this happened like three days ago. Why are you going up and apologizing to Brad now about it? And it's like, oh, it's because you need to get Julie to talk to Brad so that they can have this revealed that oh well brad's dad worked at the summer camp too so he's also a second generation counselor like julie because julie's dad worked at the camp and we find out so did what's her name's dad drew's dad worked at the camp so it's just like they it's like a lazy writing tactic like i said to get julie to talk to brad so that it can be revealed that his dad also worked at this camp at the same time julie's dad did because why, like I said, why is she going to apologize three days later? Well, there's definitely like a hint of budding romance between these characters. But again, lazy writing, it's only hinted at. It's never seen through to fruition. Like there is one scene that, where they're talking to each other where it seems like they've got like a thing forming. And they do look very Aryan nation. They're, they look straight out of the sound of music, these two. Uh, they're so white with their platinum blonde hair. It's like if the children in Village of the Dam grew up and became, you know, 20 somethings and fell in love. Um, but and you for for a moment you think like, oh, these two are going to end up together. Now, not necessarily as we see how the storyline plays out, but that seems to be the route it's taking. Yeah, so after that, Julie goes to whine at Drew about what's going on and asks her. This is the scene you're talking about where she actually now takes the pot cigarette and, and starts smoking pot. And is basically talking about how she it's unfair that she never really got to know her mother, that she only had 17 years with her mother. And Drew's like, well, at least you got that because my dad died before I was born. Uh, and it is kind of a touching moment. Again, acting is very uneven. And, you know, the, even though Julie's smoking pot, like the actress doesn't really know how to portray being like high. So it does, she does nothing to try to portray that she's smoking pot or like it's hot. No, oh no. Oh, don't expect there to be any range or diversity in this performance. It is, I mean, you're lucky that you <laughs> get the dialogue out. Um, and there's certain times when she has certain 
words that she overpronounces them, like because she's like trying to make sure she's saying it clearly. So it's something along the lines of like, "But no, you need to listen to me." <laughs> it's so forced and so awkward. But this is the closest I think they come to seeming endearing. These two together, and and um, like I said, the, the dialogue here, specifically in this moment, um, is not horribly written. Um, and Drew starts to talk about how she projects her loss in, in certain ways. And I think that's really interesting. And it certainly comes back into play here. Um, and I'm happy that they don't push it as far as I thought they were going to. They literally is just like something like how she copes after the loss of her parents. And um, it doesn't have some weird dark twist to it um, as they make it seem it may be. Yeah, no, I, I do like this moment. Uh, and it's one of the few, so I don't have a lot of compliments for that movie. But uh, at this point, uh, Julie does, she does turn to uh, Drew and say, your toes are beautiful. <laughs> and she, had, she <laughs> admires her toes, and we get a beautiful close-up of Drew's toes. And um, and they're simply stunning. And uh, Julie loves that it's she has henna art done on her toes, and Drew offers to maybe do that on her sometime, on a lovely lesbian outing, perhaps. <laughs> and then we get cut back to the sheriff station, which basically looks like a just big open room. It's <laughs> oh, Troy! Not only is the sheriff station okay, they obviously didn't have access to a <laughs> so not only is the interior of the sheriff station just a big open room, but the exterior, like they got, they were able to get the side of a building, and the sign says office. There's nothing police-like about it. It's definitely not a police station, but they just have to film it in a way so it looks like they're pulling up next to a building. And I definitely noticed that. I was like, ah, the locations here are very thin, they're very sparse, and there is nothing remotely police-like about them. And they're giving this whole police angle a lot of attention. They're giving it way more attention, frankly, than it needs but at least it's starting to stray away from the ripoff vibe. Like, this is the point where it doesn't feel like a cookie-cutter Friday the 13th movie. Yeah, because the sheriff's questioning Dean, and he's like, you know what, I don't I don't know what happened to Whitney. And in fact, she probably ran off with Jason because I caught them fucking the night before. Like, I saw them making out. Uh, and the sheriff's like, well, that may be, Dean, but I gotta keep you overnight. And Dean's like, oh, okay. It's like, really? The police, like, uh, decisions in this film are not, they would have been sued. These police people would have been, they are not logical at all. Well, th- what it comes down to is whoever wrote the script knew nothing about summer camps and knew nothing about anything legal or law or any, they just wrote what they think would happen or assumed would happen. And it makes for a very confusing storyline filled with plot holes and inconsistencies and this is one of them but yeah no you're you're definitely you're definitely right the, the everything to do with the sheriff is very like swiss cheesy like there's so many inconsistencies yeah julie now goes to take a shower and again like you mentioned the time that like the time uh, span of this movie is really hard to follow the timeline because it'll be night one minute day the next night again day so it's really hard to keep track of like how many days are actually passing but now it's day again and julie's out taking a shower and she realizes she forgot her shampoo or something so she has to like 
track back to her cabin, which is like now 20 miles away. I love that every time these characters like have to walk somewhere within the camp, it becomes like 20 miles away when just like five minutes ago, we saw everything was like right next door to each other. But she's tracking through the woods for like 10 minutes and then fucking the Henry pops out at her. He's like, ask Tommy McConnell what happened to Nelson Hammond. And she's like, how'd you know my dad's name? How did he know her dad's name? I get it. He's got Alzheimer's. He, I get but it. But he was a counselor. He he used to run the camp. No, I know. But I'm saying, how did he know that she was his offspring? Oh, I don't like, think let's... he. I don't think he did. I think he just said it because when she says, "How did you know my dad's name?" He gets this real weird look on his face and like walks away from her. I just think he said a name, but he didn't realize it was her dad. That's what I got. I don't know. Who knows? Well, I- and the big issue here is we got atop of this cast of roughly 37 people. Now we have the names Nelson and Tommy getting thrown in the mix. And, like, if already you thought this movie wasn't confusing, like, get, get buckle up. Because there's more people. We're going to get more characters. We're going to meet her, her father in flesh and blood, not just through the voiceover from a computer. Like, there are still so many more things about to happen in this movie. It is... <sighs> get ready. So she goes back to her little cabin and emails her dad saying, Hey, crazy Henry or whatever the fuck his name is. asked me to ask you what happened to Nelson Hammond. She sends the email. Uh, the group sits around now at night pondering what's going on. And the nameless blonde girl is like, I just think Dean went nuts and killed everybody. And we also have been now introduced to another character who I, I'm assuming is has been there, but he's a, a blonde man with Zachary Ty oh. Bri- uh, Brian hair and a gold. He earring. looks like oh, he looks like a pug. His he's he's an unfortunate looking fellow. His name is Doug. Doug. So you got I, Doug yeah. Dean. Oh my god, too many one syllables. I've learned it's a, it's it's a virus. If you have one one syllable name. They're going to have two one-syllable names. Pretty soon you're going to have three one-syllable names. And then all of a sudden, everyone's got a one-syllable name. And you can't remember any of them. And that's exactly what this movie is doing to me. I can't remember anybody. I'm sorry. Names? I'm at a loss, Troy. I wanted to come prepared for this, but I don't know who the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) Just call him Floppy Hair. I mean, he is the most... He's got the best body out of He has the best body. But yeah, he just came out of nowhere. Doug. Yeah, you're right. Doug. And so the blonde girl is like, oh, I think Dean went nuts. And Julie's like, I've known Dean for all my life. Or she says, like, I've known Dean forever. How? You just got to camp. But anyways, and she's like, he wouldn't do anything. And Jay, or the other guy is like, oh, I think it was Trevor Morehouse. And they're like, oh, you're dumb. And then the next day, I mean, again, this the timeline of this film is just like jumps all over the place. Now it's the next day. It's broad daylight. And Brad goes to set up the archery range and he's with Doug. He's, he's apparently staying in a cabin with Doug because he's up and Doug's like, where are you going? And Brad's like, I'm going to set up the archery range. I feel like one of us should be doing something. And Doug's like, Oh, good idea. And just lets him go. Well, as Doug is setting up this archery range, we see Brad, who the (laughs) fuck cares? They're both Brad, Doug, Dean, who knows? Although Brad is my favorite character, I think he's the cutest. But he, uh, as he's setting up the little archery range, we see the figure grab the a bow and arrow 
And as Doug is standing, or Brad, Jesus Christ, as Brad is standing in front of the, the target, he gets shot with two arrows. Oh my God. The, again. And they go through his body. This and he's film like, is not, this, this film is not subtle with its ripoffs. And this archery setup is identical to the archery setup in Friday the 13th the exact same fucking thing the whole sequence is the exact same build up where you see the the feet moving around you see the the bow and arrow get lifted up and all of a sudden before you know it one of them is getting rocketed towards brad's back and it goes through him yeah the way that they shoot these arrows though it is so like lackluster because they literally like they like have like the tip of the arrow moving and the camera's like moving with it but like they're obviously like rigging it in some way to make it work and they have to do it rather slowly so the arrows are technically moving like very slowly it's not like they, it's like they sped this up or anything it's comedic it's honestly one of like the the worst kills in the film i would say just because like they just didn't pull it off i don't feel like they pulled it off even when the one arrow goes through him like it looks like it goes through his side like they just stabbed an arrow through beside him you know what i mean yeah 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 and it, he doesn't die very convincingly either he's just like plops over and it's like oh poor brad though i liked brad even though he was underdeveloped he was he was cute and he seemed like he was a nice guy yeah. and i will say it's a surprising choice and like if in regards to who they're killing off yeah it's they pick like major characters who are starting to get some plot development so yeah brad hasn't had a ton of plot development but i sure as fucking hell thought he was going to be the new romantic lead for julie and just like i thought whitney was going to be way more of a focal character uh, and Dean as well is coming up that you think that Dean is going to be a major character, but he's somebody who they kind of cut off really short. The characters they choose to focus on towards the end of the movie, aside from Julie and Drew, um, it's surprising to me. Some of the characters who like make it <laughs> because their characters were super disposable. Yeah, so we cut back to Julie's cabin where she actually gets an email, more email, an email back from her dad who's saying, well, he doesn't remember anybody named Nelson. Yeah, the sheriff apparently got a call that Brad is missing because he comes back to the camp and he brings Dean back, right? And um, Patrick tells basically the sheriff that Jason had a beef with Brad. And now the sheriff, instead of thinking Dean is the culprit now, now the sheriff is like, oh, well, I'm going to get every man in the state looking for Jason. I'm like, why? Nothing. He hasn't done anything. Like, it's all, what did he do? Because he has a beef with a guy that's missing. Now you're going to have every man in the state looking for this guy. Well, and this is another point where the sheriff basically advises. He's like, I'm pretty sure we've got this taken care of. There's not going to be any more trouble here. And it's like three people are missing. All there has, all there's been, is trouble thus far, Sheriff. You close the close the camp. You close this camp at this point. People are dropping like flies. Who are you to say that things are okay? I'm so confused by everybody's calm state. This camp is supposed to open any day. How can it even open when there's people missing? Is that le- is it allowed? Well, apparently there's three people missing. Uh, Julie, of course, is trying to have a, a little fit about how it could not possibly be Jason. How can it be Jason? And she's trying to tell Patrick. Henry keeps mentioning Nelson Hammond. And Patrick is adamant to Julie that 
Henry is old and sick. He has Alzheimer's. He doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So you need to drop it. He has, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's obviously Jason. So she stomps back to her cabin and finds a note from Drew that says she's at the lake for a swim and to join her. So Julie grabs her towel and starts heading to the lake, which again now is about 10 miles away from the camp when we've seen it in relation to the cabins before. And it was like right there. Now she's hiking through these woods fucking forever. Somebody's behind her. She hears footsteps and she takes off running like a banshee. She, she drops her towel and everything and runs, runs through the woods, runs out into the street as Dean is like driving his SUV out of the camp to leave. He has to swerve and almost to avoid hitting her. And he like gets out of the car and he's like, God damn it, McConnell, what are you doing out here? And she's like, oh, I saw it. I heard an animal in the forest. Why wouldn't you tell him what just happened? exactly that's what i was thinking like come on here's a guy that's like could help you and instead of saying hey i think someone was following me and chasing me she's like oh i heard an animal oh by the way do you know where henry lives he's like yeah he lives right up the street and he's like well i gotta fix my flat tire now thanks to you do you want to ride back and she's like no i'm gonna walk can we at this point acknowledge like that this chick has the Oh, a gate that is very similar to like a linebacker, how she just stomps through the fucking woods. And it's like, I have to say that when she was stomping in her linebacker way through the woods, there was an introductory shot of her entering the woods where she passes the figure of Trevor Morehouse watching her. And the way it's framed, it looks like he's just standing right in the middle of a field watching her. And I'm like, bitch, how the fuck are you not seeing this full, this full size man just watching you from, I mean, maybe he's behind like a a sapling pine tree. I don't know, but it sure doesn't look like he's hiding behind anything to me. And it just kind of goes to show like the, you know, the quality of cinematography here is, it leaves a lot to be desired, but the whole build-up to this chase scene is very clunky. Clunky, clunky, clunky. Um, once the running starts happening, I mean, she does take off like a banshee. You're right. And at least it picks up for a second, but as soon as she gets to that car, it loses all momentum because, yeah, she completely disregards what happens and lies. And, and then she takes off and she's stomping away, and as she's trucking away, the killer comes up behind dean and slits his throat with a garden trowel right Uh, some well you don't really see it you know he gets a a garden trowel to the back as he tries he's trying to hit the uh, one of his pieces of equipment because he's trying to fix the tire so he tries hitting it against the car to like make a noise to get her attention as she's walking away and the killer takes the garden trowel and digs it into his back to like drag him back so like I, I get what they're doing. The garden trowel effect was not that great. The throat cut was, like, fine. Like, you could clearly, like, he has his head down and then he just lifts it up and there's a wound. It's a, I think they, I think it was the garden trowel, spike on the garden trowel that they used to cut his throat. And then, yeah, he's trying to get her attention because she's not that far away from him. We get, we get, like, a shot of her lying back and down the road and he's like, Julie, Julie. And he, like, picks up his, uh, 
like the crowbar and it's going to beat the tire. And that's when the killer whaps him in the back with the uh, trowel. And it's a very lame effect. You can tell it's just like a shirt or a, you know, a plastic torso with a shirt on it that has some blood in it so that when they hit it, it bleeds through and then he dies. Yeah. And Dean is dead now. And I, I, this is tied into what I was saying earlier. And I kind of let it slip that he passes, but whatever it's, it's neither here nor there because like I said, they're killing characters that have like, actual storyline and impact so it's very strange to me that they all they leave us with is julie and drew and a bunch of like secondary characters like imagine if the director made the ballsy choice of ending this movie with like why don't we kill everybody other than doug and that other blonde girl and totally throw them for a loop like that would have gotten me excited if i was watching this and i'm like oh they killed they killed julie they killed drew everyone's dead but the two characters i know nothing about because that's literally like kind of what it feels like at this point. You're winding it down to the least impactful characters. And so it does kind of make for like a... It's the opposite of like, if I was watching I Know What You Did Last Summer and you have it winding down, they're like killing down all the characters and like finally it's like Sarah Michelle Gellar and like a few other people like left standing. This, it's like the lead girl, the other supporting lead girl, and then just a bunch of like people who like I don't know anything about, and I don't give a fuck if they live or die. There's no like momentum. Um, it, it really kind of takes some of like the excitement out of all of it because you just don't give a shit, you know? Yeah, and Julie has just been a horrible character to, to to watch this entire time. So I was just praying that someone would come out and kill her. It doesn't happen. She goes to Henry's creepy cottage. Uh, he just lives like right on the premises of this camp in this like rundown cottage. And she's like, Henry, if you're home, I'd like to talk to you. And then she has that line where she's like, creepy old cottage. <laughs> but she goes in. Yeah, it's, it's just random. It's just like out of nowhere. And her delivery is so awkward. She goes into this cabin like she's literally breaking into this old man's house. She goes in and she takes like she steals a picture. She takes a picture and like walks out. And then we don't really know what it is until she gets back to her cabin where she emails again, because God forbid we haven't had enough email in this film, but now she's voiceover voiceover. to go with it. She sends her dad an email saying, dad, I thought you said you didn't know a Nelson Hammond. I found this picture and you are clearly standing next to him in it. After she sends email, Drew comes in and brings Julie back her towel. And she's like, oh, did you did you leave this? Did you drop your towel in the woods? And Julie's like, yeah. And then we see that there's a shoe print on the towel. And then it cuts back. It cuts to the sheriff. He's This poor sheriff, how many times has he come to this camp in a matter of an hour? Because he's, 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 he's there like three again. times a day. And it's so Just funny. Please. This is what I lost it, Roger. I lost it. I was like, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. There's a shoe print on this towel and the sheriff asked asks julie she's like did jason have shoes with prints like that and she's like yes how how do you know what your random boyfriend's bottom of his shoes look like and she's she's in miss a beat she's so and his, sure his response like, his yes. response like- is well that's our man Put out a bulletin. <laughs> Case, Case closed. That's <laughs> it. Shoot him on sight. It's like, <laughs> like how? And the sheriff again, unusually optimistic about 
keeping the camp open. He's like, well, everything's going to be fine, guys. Like, this is like the fourth time he's reassured them. Do not trust the sheriff. Is this bitch in here? Is this bitch in Jason's closet literally studying the bottom of his shoes? Apparently fucking so. (laughs) Oh, so then this is the scene where we were talking about earlier where she actually goes and she does an internet search for Nelson Hammond. (laughs) She's like waiting for the the, the modem to load. She's, you know, like you, you hear the full like internet like, no, but seriously, it feels like it. She's at this fucking archaic computer, and like it just shows like how much time has passed since this movie was made. Because honestly, I couldn't take this whole sequence seriously. We've seen so many t- variations of this up to this point of. You know, from Naomi Watts in the ring to anybody else doing some form of internet sleuthing. And this is just like, they're never exciting, but this is the worst of all of them. Because that goddamn voiceover comes into play as she's looking at like a, like a 1998 era website. That's literally just like blue font on a white screen giving her information, <laughs> giving her information on the background of this camp. And it is this other woman's voice. Yeah, it's another woman's voice that's... That's reading that she's reading about Nelson Hammond and Nelson. Nelson Hammond was admitted to the hospital after almost drowning in a lake during a game of bloody murder. Would a would a newspaper know what game? What would they print that? Like, wouldn't they? They would just be like, "Hey, this kid almost drowned. He's in the hospital." Lazy, lazy writing. Then there's another one that's like from from two years later, and it's like. Oh, Nelson Hammond was admitted, committed to a mental institution for killing his camp counselor, Jim Anderson. And then when he was asked about it, he, he, his response was, do you want to play bloody murder? It's like, it, it is, it is several classic serial killer backgrounds from different movies that they took and they threw into a blender and they blended it together and they poured it out onto this white screen <laughs> and, they, and they and they let a voiceover actress read it for her because it really like it is the most uninspired backstory and it is so poorly like written it's like i bet you like they, they're like we have to make it sound like it's written for the newspaper and they got like a journalist from like a senior like a high school student who like works for like her high school paper and they're like we're gonna give you a project <laughs> write us a real authentic sounding newspaper article and she's like i'm on it guys and that's that's what she gave them because it sounds like it sounds so amateur it is amateur, but we now know that Jim Anderson, who is Drew's dad, was killed by Nelson Hammond. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, so the phone's not working now all of a sudden. So Julie starts to head to the main cabin again, 10 miles away now, when someone jumps out and grabs her and there's a chase that ensues and she's able to go into the main cabin and like trick this, whoever it is, to go into the uh pantry and she shuts the door and locks it and lo and behold it's jason he's like julie let me out let me out and she's like no no and he's like dean dean threatened to tell you know dean threatened to tell you about me and whitney if i didn't leave so i and i didn't want to do that to you so i didn't have a choice he's like please let me out well i would say instead of like letting him out which is kind of a dumb decision. She actually does leave a bit in there and calls the police. Yeah. Here's another one of those strong feminist moments that we get from Julie. Un- unexpected. The sheriff is back once again to take Jason away. 
and he's got he's got his man. Like he's done. Case closed. It really is finished. Like be on your merry way, guys. Nothing to see here. Everything can go back to normal. Now it's next morning. Julie wakes up and tells Drew that she's okay. She goes and checks her email. The dad's like, oh, I do remember Nelson Hammond. Now that you mention it, whatever happened to him? Now there's this obstacle course, okay, that Julie, that Drew and Toby are setting up. Toby's been gone through most of the movie, but now he's back to help set up this obstacle course. So Julie goes and helps them, and she agrees to give it a run, to run through the obstacle course, which why are you giving the girl that runs like a linebacker who has the most awkward run? Why are you devoting screen time to showing her run through this obstacle course obstacle course? Because it is the most awkward thing ever recorded on film. Also, like, do you think that they put budget into constructing this obstacle course? Or do you think that they had the obstacle course at their disposal and were like, we absolutely have to use it? Because either way, like, it's an unnecessary frill in a movie that severely lacks any frills. Like, you've got this full fucking obstacle course and this whole goddamn sequence written around it, and other than that, you got a bunch of fucking trees and some cabins. Um, it's a weird sequence. It's weird. And then she goes ahead and she fucking runs through the whole thing, and uh, you think it's gonna go somewhere, be something exciting, and all that happens is, like, the rope is, like, shredded, so when she climbs it, she the rope breaks and she falls. Yeah, well, you do get the shot of the hand cutting the rope. So someone has cut the rope. So as she's climbing up the wall, the rope wall, the rope snaps. She falls back. And they're like, oh, Julie fell. And I'm like, oh, too bad she didn't fall on a fucking spike because I would have been happy that we didn't have to deal with her anymore. But lo and behold, she's fine. She's fine. Um, it cuts to Doug is now with the unnamed, unnamed blonde girl who literally doesn't have a name. I don't, we'll call her Chrissy. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> she is like, I can't find the tug of war rope. And he's like, well, I'll get it for you. You go on your way. So as he's going, uh, he goes back into the cabin to get this, whatever it is. And he gets, he's coming out of the door and he gets stabbed in the back with something. Is it lawn darts? Well, first of all, he's holding an absurd amount of rubber kickballs. Red balls. And then, yes. And so when he gets darted, or I think it, it's, I think it's in another arrow because we had an arrow kill earlier. But it doesn't, it's not very, very lo- it's not very long though. It's like, no, I but think the it's lo- like, like a lo- lawn dart. I don't know. Yeah. But the darts aren't that big. So it's very confusing. But you know what I will say, man? Either way, before Brad got killed with an arrow through the back, this time around, Doug gets a lawn dart, uh, we'll call it a lawn dart, through the ch- the torso, the chest. Brad needs to take some lessons from Doug on how you get killed by a fucking arrow through the torso. <laughs> because Doug takes this moment, he may not have any lines, and he may not have any purpose, but he sure fucking knows how to die on camera. And this man milks it for every <laughs> single second. It's the best kill in the movie, simply because this guy is like stealing the oh, he's, scene he's groaning he's growling he's oh my god it hurts <laughs> rolling around <laughs> yeah he he's he's having a blast somebody was like yeah you need to but he he had a, he had a fun time with this so now he's died yeah he dies very dramatically uh we cut back drew gives julie a, a, a like a picture collage for being such a good friend blah 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 hangs it on the wall oh, are these two ever gonna just make out 
Yeah, these girls bonded real fucking quick. Oh, she's over like, a oh, I have a new best friend. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Julie's dad pulls up out of nowhere. And, like, as if we thought there weren't enough characters, her dad is now no longer just a, a, a disembodied voice. He is here in physical form. Well, I want to know how he got there so fast because his last email said he had to go away on business, right? Um, Well, he's determined to get there. He's like, I had to go away on business, so I couldn't answer. But now he's here at the camp. And he's out there with much concern. He's just there kind of like checking in on things. He seems pretty content. Uh, There's not really any problems brought up to him. Is he made aware of the, the missing people? I don't know. I don't know, but this is also when she he gets introduced to Drew, and then um, basically, what's his name? The head counselor. What is his name again? Steve Patrick. Patrick. We get another line about. Oh, I forgot my camper list. So Patrick and Julie's like, "Well, duty calls. I guess I'll go get it." What the fuck do you need a camper list for? I don't understand this camper list, right? To me, that miss. I mean, there's no. That implies to me that campers that's are what still I'm coming. In. Honestly, that the fact that they're still opening is <laughs> shocking to me. It is shocking that the state is allowing this place to operate. <laughs> but okay, we'll go with it. Uh, Juliet goes back to get her camping list, and she leaves Drew to show her dad around. Okay, so. Can we stop to say that throughout this whole film, Julie has seemed to like want nothing more than to like interact with her dad. Right. I mean, the whole movie has been her emailing her dad, like wanting him to like respond right away. If he doesn't respond right away, she freaks out. Her dad's here. Right. So instead of like rushing to get the campers list and go, but spend time with her dad, she decides this is the perfect time to do some more investigative work. So she takes the picture, she goes into the main cabin, she goes through the files, she finds a file on Nelson Hammond, she's reading through everything, and she finds out that Drew's dad was, because apparently this camp keeps just files from 30 years ago, just right right there. Uh, she didn't even have to dig hard to find it. She basically opened the file cabinet, it was like the very first file she pulls out just happens to be from this year with all these counselors. So she finds out that Drew's dad is Bill Anderson, who was murdered by Nelson Hammond. And much like most of the movie comes to the very quick decision. All of these characters that Drew's the killer, like that makes her think Drew's the killer. And not only that, they give us a visual depiction of what it would have looked like if Drew was the killer. Yes. So we, as the audience are also, led to assume based off what we're seeing with our eyes we're we're forced to believe that she is the killer because it is shown to us it's a very strange technique that they use in this movie showing what could have been versus what is actually happening um but yeah so they give us a montage of visuals that reveal drew being the killer they all make sense because thus far she's been somewhat of a red herring so maybe they thought like haha we're getting the viewers wink 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 they're going to be surprised no i'm just pissed off when i find out that they just fucked lied to me again and it showed me something that didn't really happen it's annoying but um and the way this sequence plays out is very confusing because basically drew is like luring 
her uh, Julie's father onto the uh, the dock to like you should get a view of that lake and he's like all right well come with me and she's like after you and then you see her like pick up an oar and it is very much made to look like she is actively doing what happens uh he gets an oar swipe against his back not a very rough one mind you one that would not knock a man out but seems to knock this guy out and he falls gut first into the into the lake um it's all made to look as though it is drew that is doing this so of course i'm like wow that was a really like half-baked ending they just kind of handed that information over to us that's random until we proceed yeah yeah, it doesn't make any sense because her character all of a sudden starts acting very sinister. Very even when she, Julie runs into her, but as Julie's as Julie realizes in her mind that Drew's the killer, she goes to run from the cabin. And we do get a scene of uh, the door opening, the closet door opening, and Dean's body is like hanging on the door. And Julie screams and takes off running. And then she, as she's running out of the cabin, she runs into Toby who has like red, what looks like blood all over him. And he's like, Oh no, no, no. It's just paintball. And she's like, call the police. It's drew. It's been drew all along because drew drew's dad was killed by Nelson Hammond. And she's getting revenge. Does that make any sense? Any sense? Why would you assume this girl that supposedly you bonded with is like killing for revenge because her dad was killed by it makes right. whatever. But like that aside, like the fact that they went through the effort of showing us all of the flashbacks of it happening, like does that make sense either? Like why would they give us this plot device to such an extent only to prove it to be false? You know, like I guess Maybe they're trying to show, like, what her assumption is, how the storyline is playing out. But, like, it's not a well-handled technique. They did not use this trick, in my mind, correctly. There's a certain time that you throw out red herring footage such as this. This point in the movie and the way that they executed it, it just made it seem like she's like she is the killer. And, like, with foul negative intentions. Well, she also, after Toby runs away, Julie actually runs into Drew. And now Drew is acting, like I said, she's acting all sinister. She's like, are you looking for somebody? And Drew's, uh, Julie's like, where's my dad? And she's like, oh, he's waiting on the boat dock for us. So they go to the boat dock. And as at the dock, Julie like confronts, like basically just very blatantly. He's like, Drew, I know it's you. I know you killed everybody. Your, your dad was killed by, you know, Bill, your dad was Bill Anderson. He was killed by Nelson and now you're killing everybody. And, and Drew's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then she's like, oh my God, Julie, look behind you, look behind you. And like, we see like a killer come out from behind the corner in his big old oversized hockey mask and ill-fitting uh, jumpsuit with a sickle and coming towards Julie. And finally Drew like lifts up this like reflective piece of I don't know what it is. It's so, like a tanning. Yeah. So a tanning tray. Yeah. Julie can see that there's actually someone behind her and the killer charges at her. And she actually jumps into the, she jumps into the lake and the killer like swings a sickle at her, misses her. Then goes out, he goes after drew. And there's like a struggle where drew's trying to beat him with a boat or Julie's in the lake, screaming her head off to, to get, kill him, get him, get him, get him. And Drew gets away, but she trips over something in the sand. And then like the killer comes with the boat or 
goes to stab her, misses, punches Drew, knocks her out. It's all very just like rushed and anticlimactic. It is. It is. And what what comes afterwards is even more like anticlimactic because Drew or um Julie rushes back to the camp and encounters Patrick and through like, you know, a grand reveal, it's made apparent that Patrick is actually Nelson. Patrick is revealed to be the killer. And, like, at this point in the game, after all, like, the red hearings and the like, very elaborate, like, alternate reality sequences that they have played for us, it's like, okay, I mean, that's fine, I guess. Patrick? Um, alright. Like, it's such, like, a wah, wah. Like, that's who the killer is? But, like, okay, I'll take it. Like, whatever, he's cute. Uh, he's definitely not the worst actor in the film. And he at least, like tries to take it and run with it and the whole sequence that follows is like this whole pursuit where he's hunting down chasing down julie and i will say like if there's any moment in the movie that does have some like intensity to it it's like their chase sequence there's this whole thing where he reveals that all the bodies he's killed he's had in like a snare in a tree and like she looks up and there's like a bushel of bodies just hanging and so like the rope gets cut and the bodies all drop on him but they're all like mannequin bodies so they all just like limply like fall and crush this guy (laughs) but um he does take off after her and like the thing i like about this chase sequence is she's i mean she's running fast he is the guy the actor had to be a track star like this guy is full on sprinting after her and this chase is like surprisingly rough around the edges in the sense like she's running and she at one point trips and i think it had to be an actual like trip in which like the actress actually stumbled but she gets like right back up and like keeps on running it doesn't look like anything was like a planted like action like okay you fall here like it doesn't read that way it feels very natural and his he's very intense his intensity comes through in the sequence and it makes for a rather solid chase scene which i was not prepared for because the rest of the movie is just so fucking boring but um this moment this aspect of the finale does kick up the adrenaline a little bit yeah it's it's quick um but yeah there's a there's also a point where like um her shoelace gets caught on a branch and he's coming towards her with like this axe that we have to mention she runs right by not just like, there's one this axe there's like 40 axes there's axes like embedded in tree stumps and she just runs right by him doesn't grab him the killer grabs one and like as she's trying to get her shoelace undone from being stuck on this tree bra- tree limb he like swings the axe uh misses her misses her uh and yeah they they take off but he does he's like proclaiming that like drew's dead oh i killed her but all he did was like punch her in the face so i don't know what he why he assumes she'd be dead from a punch in the face but i do like yeah the bodies up in the tree uh that all fall down on julie's dad because there is the the scene where he's getting ready to shoot he's getting ready to shoot julie and her dad comes charging out and that's when the bodies fall on both of them yeah um it's like a stringer full of bodies uh she runs she actually gets to the group she gets back to the camp where the cops are there uh jason's there everyone's there and she's like oh my god uh, patrick's the killer patrick's the killer and patrick comes up behind her and he's like no 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 drew's the killer drew's the killer she's she's being arrested back there julie has a concussion she doesn't know what he's talking about 
And like there, so there's this like trying, they're trying to play up this like confusion element, but it doesn't really work very well uh, because not enough time or not enough like tension is allowed because it's pretty rushed because then the Patrick character before like he can gauge anyone's like, you know, whether they believe him or whether they believe Julie, he like whips out the ax and gets ready to swing it at Julie. And all of a sudden he's shot. And it's by Drew who comes around, comes out of nowhere and shoots poor Patrick in the arm, I guess. And he's just laying there. Well, there's this whole bit going on where Toby rushes over to one of the cop cars and grabs, like he grabs one of the shotguns and you think like he's going to shoot him, but he doesn't know how to operate the shotgun. So, and I could have like, I would have bought that. Like if he shot him just in the nick of time before he got Julie. But then when like Drew shows up and she's got this gun like, first of all, where did she procure this gun? Because she's not coming from the direction of the police officers. Does girl just carry? Is she allowed to have a gun at a summer camp in which she's a camp counselor? I have questions. I have a lot of questions. I mean, I already had questions before we got to this point. But, I mean, this aspect, for this to be the ending, it really does seem, like, half-baked and <laughs> not fully thought out. And the fact that, like, the, like, the main villain, who is Patrick, a.k.a. Nelson, the fact that he is, like, brought down by a shot to the arm, and that's it. <laughs> that's it. There's not, like, a second go. Nope. It's not like he gets back up and fights back. Like, that's it. It was definitely, like, a huge letdown. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, he's not even killed. He's literally shot in the arm. Because then you see get the scene of Drew and the dad being loaded into the ambulance, and the random blonde girl is still there. Not only is she there, but, like, after everybody has had their moment, like, all of the major characters have had a moment with Julie. There's one final moment with Julie and this other blonde, and she's like, well, Julie, what are you thinking? You coming back again next summer? And it's like, who are you? <laughs> why, <laughs> why did you get the final moment? Like, what, yeah. what made you relevant in this situation, random woman? She, yeah, I don't even, like I said, a poor thing's not even given a name. We get the scene of the cop, like everyone else gets to go into an ambulance and like all that happened to fucking what's her drew is she got punched in the face and they're like loading her into an ambulance on a stretcher. Fucking Patrick actually got shot and he's like in the front seat of the cop car. Like they didn't even bother getting him in an ambulance. I mean, I understand he's a killer, but come on, isn't that cruel and unusual? Like you let this guy get shot and instead of putting him in the ambulance, you're throwing him in the front seat of your car. And then like the cop is like the sheriff's like aggressively pulling him out of the fucking front seat of the car. And it's like, the dude just got shot. Give him a break. And the cops, like, when they pull up, they pull up to like the motel the, office. The office. Yeah. The <laughs> office that's supposed to be. Yeah. And he's like, and I, and again, I, I don't understand some of the dialogue because the, the, the sheriff is like, I could understand you killing uh, Whitney and I could understand you killing Brad. Why? He had no. What did they do? <laughs> Who are these people in your life? Why are you so offended? And then, he, but he's like, but I don't understand why you killed Dean. What? And to which it's, it's literally his line is only to give Nelson the chance to say his line. Oh, I didn't kill Dean. That was Trevor that was Morehouse. Tre that must have been Trevor Morehouse. And then he has like a very maniacal yeah. smile. Like he knows something more. Cut back to the campground, which we thought we had left for good. But no, no, there's still unfinished business. 
And the unfinished business is Julie, Toby, and Jason. And Jason, Toby and Julie are sitting there having some nice flirtatious conversation. And Jason walks up. And he's like, I hope I'm not interrupting anything. Let's go, Julie. And basically what we get is Julie has now decided that she is all into Toby because she tells Jason, hey, dude, Toby's coming with me. And Jason's like, oh, okay, cool. We're dropping him off at the, you know, the train station or whatever. And she's like, no, he's coming with me. I'm dropping you off at the train station. Burn, bitch, burn. And he's like, fuck you. You, I hope you two are happy. I'm just walking home. So they add a girl, Julie, though. Here we are with another strong feminist angle for this unusually poorly acted character. <laughs> like, really, like, if they would have gotten a better actress for this, I would be cheering her on. Yeah, but at this point, I'm like, come on, Toby, you can do better than this catatonic, <laughs> emotionless sack of flesh <laughs> <laughs> that runs like a linebacker in the NFL. Um, <laughs> So she chooses Toby. They get in the van, they get in the truck and they drive away and Jason's hauling down the street. And I love that. They just like drive right past him. Like he's walking. They don't even stop to say, Hey, are you sure you don't want to ride? Nope. They just keep going. And we do get the final scene of the movie where Jason is walking through the wood, walking down the road. And all of a sudden what jumps out of the bushes it's the hockey mask chainsaw wielding Trevor Morehouse. Or so we assume. <laughs> and so we assume and we get, we get poor Jason's <laughs> final scream as the credits start to it's roll. It's literally, guys, listeners, Troy, I have to say that I think this is the single worst ending to a, a horror movie I have ever seen. It is, the scream is like something they just grabbed off of a sound, like, panel. You know, like, they're like, find me a man scream. It, it is so disjointed and uh, I don't think it's the same actor. Some just a random man's like, yeah. Uh, Trevor Morehouse is the least intimidating villain I have. I can think of oh in God. recent memory. Like he's he's like wobbling this chainsaw around, but it's not going. It's not on. It's not smoking. It's just like a. It's like a, just a chainsaw. <laughs> Like sound. It's a chainsaw sound effect, and he's, and it doesn't help. It doesn't help that the mask is like twenty sizes too big for whoever's wearing oh it. Oh my god! It's like flopping around on their yeah. head, and then the jumpsuit is ill-fitting. The jumpsuit's like way too big, so you basically get this frumpy-looking person with a giant hockey mask head. Well, and like when he's sawing around, like the chainsaw, like it's he's popping out of the bushes, so there's like trees and branches and like the chainsaw is just like hitting the branches and like knocking them away because it can't saw through them because it's not, it's not yeah, operate yeah, yeah. it's not like it's not even like they like remove the chain and just let it smoke the thing is off it is such a bad ending and i like i literally like <laughs> the, the credits started rolling the jaws theme started playing and i just like looked at the screen and i was like god damn it troy like you you <laughs> next week's troy i'm telling you You've got some redemption coming your way because this movie, mm, there are certain things I like look for in my reviews, whether it be for good or bad. Like there's a few things I need to get me through a review. One of the big things is like at least one or two satisfying kills. Even the best kill in this movie is not a good kill. It's just like entertaining because it's like bad. Like, there's not a single moment of fear or suspense or tension 
in this film. It's so blasé. Oh my, it's like watching like camel colored paint dry. You know, it is, it is, ugh, I, I can't think of a film I've disliked this much in a while. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to try to say anything positive about this film because it pretty much fails in every category that you want to check off when you are talking about discussing a film cinematography fail direction fail acting for the most part fail villain fail death scenes fail it's it it's not that long of a movie i mean it's 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 about what 80 some minutes it's not like it's terribly long i mean it's probably longer than it needs to be for sure but it feels so much longer than what it is and it's just because it's so just flat and there's no energy there. It, there's nothing going on in this film that makes it like stand out. It's a post scream slasher. You know, scream was supposed to revitalize the slasher genre, which we got some great slasher films after scream. However, this one is not one of them. It's, oh, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know what they were, what their intentions were. Were they trying to make a parody? To me, it seems like they were trying to be serious with this film. There's nothing parody like about it, but I'm wondering if that was their intention and it just failed. But this film is, is bad. And it, the lead actress is terrible. Uh, that doesn't help. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, Troy, about it, like being a parody, just because certain choices that are made are so blatantly taken from other films. And I'm like, stolen. Is it, they're stolen. They're stolen. It really is. It is stolen material, but it's not in any way homaging or acknowledging the source material. And that's where it becomes, I mean, I used this term earlier in the, the review, uh, offensive. It actually feels pretty offensive at certain points. Um, especially because it's done so badly. Like Trevor Morehouse is not scary. Trevor Morehouse can go fuck himself. There's nothing about Trevor Morehouse that deserves a film, let alone a sequel, let alone a good sequel. Like, I mean, we are inevitably reviewing that film because this film is such an abomination. The fact that they even got a sequel off the ground, I'm baffled who put money into it, but then, like, who who managed to take the source material and make it, like, significantly better i mean that is a task this film got a was released by artisan which was a pretty prominent you know distributor back in the day and, and like i said i know like when i worked at the video store this got rented quite a bit i mean i think it fooled people i mean i think the cover art fooled people into thinking they were getting something way different than what they actually got but at least i think it, i at least think it got the, the rentals and maybe the sales to justify a sequel and yeah the sequel is we're not going to really get into it right now, but the sequel is so much better than it deserves to be. And it's so much better than this film. So if you've seen this film and you've avoided the sequel because you think you're getting more of the same with this film, do us a favor and watch the sequel because it's so much better. And there's also a third film in this little trilogy kind of roundabout film called the graveyard. That's supposed to be like a sequel, another sequel, but doesn't really loosely connects, but yeah, so if you haven't seen that, check that one out too. But yeah, Bloody Murder 2 Closing Camp is a different director 
who obviously took the material and amped it up and and made a, a, a true slasher flick that was a true kind of love letter to 80 slashers that I think this wanted to be, but you just, this was just full of inept, ineptness all around. Uh, sorry, bloody murder, but yeah, a big old no for me. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. So now I gotta re I gotta redeem myself, I feel like, for next week's episode. Troy, if you don't find a movie with a final girl that has some redeeming qualities, I am going to start losing my faith in you. Because l- right now all I want to see is Beth and Julie like fight club style cage fight each other to the death. Mm, we still got to do that poll about who's yeah. the worst oh, final girl. And she's and Julie's going on it because I mean, though, so she might make some okay decisions as like a character, her acting man. Like, I want to just, woo! I want to put Julie and Beth together. We're going to put it on our Facebook group as a poll and then put it in the Patreon as a poll. Who is the worst final girl, Julie or Beth? Speaking of which, so next week I've decided it's October. It's October. Uh, I know that we're, I I tend not to like to be cliche, but I'm going to because it is October and and a lot of the horror theme podcasts are doing like Halloween themed films for October. We really have not done that so much, Roger. We kind of avoid doing that where we, you know, we acknowledge certain holidays, but we don't really have themed months or, 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 or pick films based on like the time of year. Uh, because we have yet to review like a Christmas themed film slasher film, which, you know, or, or Halloween themed film. So I thought, you know what, let's bite the bullet. It's been over a year. We've been doing this. So I want to do it's Halloween. I want to get in the Halloween spirit. And, and what better way to do that than to watch a film that's like drenched in Halloween atmosphere and is also fairly recent. We also kind of fall into a trap where we cover a lot of older films And I want to cover something a little bit more recent that I feel like went under the radar that I feel like should have gotten a lot more attention than it did because it's actually a pretty competent, pretty entertaining film most of the time. So next week for Halloween week, or it's not Halloween week, but for Halloween month, we are covering Hellfest. I'm excited for that one. I loved it. Yeah, I did too. And it, you know, it doesn't have you, it kind of misses the mark with when you mentioned like having a uh, a final girl that's you know, whatever you you know, a great final girl. The final girl in Hellfest really isn't all that exciting. However, we kind of get sort of two final girls because Bex Taylor Klaus his character kind of makes it to the very end and she is a highly entertaining character. So while you have kind of the other character that I can't remember her name, who is the final girl? You also get the Bex Tyler, Bex Taylor Klaus characters that I know a lot of people weren't fans of, but I like her. So tune in next week for Hellfest to to kind of get the clean your palate of this bloody murder nonsense. And you know, what I think I like about the fact that we're going to get into Hellfest because that is a little um, out of left field from you. You have a few areas you tend to fall into, and I do like that you're doing something completely unexpected. Um, if you keep in mind, Hellfest and the movie Haunt both came out within like very, very similar, similar movies, very similar time well, frame. Th- there was there was three of them that came out that were very similar. There was Bloodfest, yes, Bloodfest, Hellfest, and Haunt that all came out around the same time and just happened to have very similar plots. I, I, I like I liked Haunt a lot. I, I still feel like uh, Hellfest of the three is probably my favorite because I just love 
the elaborate set design of the film. It really feels like Halloween. It really feels like it's elaborate. The whole Halloween theme amusement park that these characters go to. But yeah, so Hellfest next week, guys. So if you haven't watched it, it's from 2018. Pop it in. Give it a watch before you listen to our next episode. And then we also have some very exciting episodes coming up for Halloween and and, and special things that I think you guys are going to be very excited about. Yeah, I can't wait. And Troy, yeah, I'm very happy you picked this movie because I find it very enjoyable. I definitely think there's going to be a lot more to... um, analyze in this film that will be exciting to talk about i dare say that um bloody murder while it's easy to mock it certainly is not a film that gets me excited and i think hellfest is a title that that i can i can feel my adrenaline pumping already me too me too guys so tune in next week for hellfest also remember to check out our our patreon uh, the link will be in the show notes or just go to patreon.com search for dark night of the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll start putting content up there as soon as we start getting some patrons. So guys, until next week, happy October, uh, and tune in again for Hellfest. Bye everybody. Good night. <laughs>